One major component of inclusive marketing that isn't often talked about, but is actually pretty critical to the success of any inclusive marketing efforts that you're going to put forth, is product design and development. Um, you want to make sure that the products and the services that you offer are as inclusive as possible. But a lot of times when people are thinking about engaging a broader diversity of customer groups who have different identities, they're thinking about it purely from the marketing communications standpoint. They're thinking about all the promotional campaigns and all the other different um, things that they're going to say, they're do, the visual imagery. And while all those things are important, the actual product is a critical, critical, critical element of this overall process. So in today's episode, I am bringing back an interview I did with the lovely Sabrina Miharelli, who is an expert in inclusive product design. We had such a rich, rich, rich conversation. And we had the conversation a while back as part of a program that I had. And I it was just too good of a conversation to keep behind a vault. So I wanted to make sure that I brought it out into the public so you can have it. So after this short break, you will hear my very fascinating and rich conversation with Sabrina, all about inclusive product design. Okay, I've got another podcast recommendation for you. It's The Product Boss, hosted by Jacqueline Snyder, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Now, in this show, Jacqueline helps you take your physical product sales and strategy to the next level so you can create your dream life. Now, Jonathan and I often toy around with the idea of selling some type of physical product. And while the idea of doing that seems super dreamy, I know that there's a whole lot of details and nuts and bolts involved with being able to do that well. So I know when it's time for us to get closer to thinking about that idea, I know I'm going to get a ton of insights and information from Jacqueline on the Product Boss podcast. And I've listened to a few episodes already and the advice is beneficial even if you're not selling a product-based business. Go and listen to the Product Boss wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Sabrina Meharelli. I am the founder of Pause and Effect. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, hers, and I reside on the stolen lands of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh Nations, which is presently known as Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. I uh, founded this organization through, I would say I've, I've gone through a, a pretty wild journey in my career. I've worked in a lot of different roles and sort of um, pause and effect is the product of all of my experiences through my whole life. I've been an advocate for social justice and for um, creating the conditions where everybody has the, the opportunity and the, and uh, the, the structures in place for that allow them to thrive. And so um, my earlier career started off in HR. I worked in that space predominantly because I was drawn to this, to the um, idea of human psychology and understanding human psychology, the way people think. It was just something that pulled me into that. Um, and I didn't realize at the time that understanding the way people think and that interest actually translated into a lot of different areas in my career. And so after I spent some time in HR, I tried to bring and introduce a bit more of this design thinking, human-centered design, um, innovation concepts in the HR world. And at that time, the HR world wasn't really ready for that. 
Mm-hmm. So I ended up moving into uh, user experience design, where I got to be part of teams that were building products and services for customers. Um, and so I spent some time as a user experience designer and a product manager. And at that time, I realized that this idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion, or the importance of thinking about and prioritizing diversity and anti-racism in the way that customer products and services were built, was always positioned as an afterthought. We'll get to that later. First, we need to build for this audience. And so I wondered why, and I realized that our whole design thinking approach Uh, The whole user experience design framework has actually been built to perpetuate systems of harm and inequity. And so at that time, I started to tinker around with the design thinking frameworks and actually look for opportunities or or moments or gaps where um, we might miss an opportunity to be more inclusive or to consider audiences that were outside of privileged norm. And so um, that that led me to uh, start my own organization, which is called Pause and Effect. We have a fantastic team of designers that are uh, collaborating and building different approaches, tools, practices for folks that are in the innovation uh, and design space. So that's a little bit about it. Like this, is such a journey. It is. It's such a yeah. such a really interesting like how you ended up here, but we all have like our own paths that get us to the place where we belong. Right. So I'm thankful that you ended up here because this is something a lot of people, especially now that people are starting to get to a place to where um, they're thinking about inclusion as it relates to marketing and the products and the services and the experiences you deliver are a big part of that. So could you, there's, you said a couple of things here that I'm like, Ooh, I want to get to that. I want to get to that. I want to get to that. But Before we do that, like, let's start and like round everybody on what an inclusive product is. Mm -hmm. It's funny because when we talk about inclusive product, I think the uh, many folks, including myself at a point in time, thought of this as a binary, like either you're exclusive or you're inclusive. And that's not really ever the case where I think inclusive products are are really products that are continually learning and continually adapting to fit the the diverse needs of a diverse consumer market. And so that's how I would define an inclusive product, a product that is continually and actively prioritizing the needs of marginalized communities. Um, There are examples of products that are doing better Uh, in this space than other products because they have introduced that consideration or that thinking, but there's always um, more that can be done. So for example, uh, and I I don't know if this is an existing product, but I'm going to give an example of a product. So we know hand towel dispensers where in in traditional or in many bathrooms, you'll see hand towel dispensers where you have to turn a knob to be able to get the towel out. And then they created the um, the one where you like move your hand underneath as a sensory detector so that the towel mm-hmm. can come out on its own. Mm-hmm. So that was an, adapt- uh, an adaptation that benefits people that have certain disabilities that wouldn't be able to, to do that and that require um, the towel to come out. Now, if that dispenser has not been designed or tested with folks of different races in mind, it may not actually be able to identify 
black hands over white hands, right? So we have to always think about it. And why I bring this up is because there is sometimes we think that if we create a product for one group of people that we're done and now it's an inclusive product and we're good to go. But we have to make sure that we're considering all sorts of intersectional identities, right? So the dispenser, great, it works. Even if you think about hand sanitizer dispensers, right? Like we put our hand underneath, it drops the hand sanitizer in. But how does that detection work for different types of hands? What are What's the experience that maybe an elderly person would have when they put their hand under the sanitizer dispenser versus somebody who's a kid versus somebody who's... So if we start to think about different people, we start to think that this product might actually need to continue to evolve and change because... It's still, it, although it's benefiting one population, it's still not benefiting the mass population that it could benefit if the design was slightly changed. I love that example because I'm sitting here like, wow, I never even thought of the fact that as a Black woman, I'm putting my hand out of this venture that it might not recognize my hand because I have a darker, darker complexion. And I imagine that as the people who were designing the products they might not have even thought about that technology until there became an issue where they realized, oh, it's not reading for certain people. So is that part of the process where maybe it wasn't designed for a particular group, they designed it for everybody, but then over time they started to realize, oh, this doesn't work for certain people. And then we need to go back and adjust. Is that kind of how it might happen or it might work? Yeah. Like a lot of companies end up doing that, right? They design something thinking that it's for everyone. And then they realize afterwards that it isn't for everyone and that it doesn't work for certain populations. So they have to go back and they have to evaluate and they have to change the product. Um, What we try to do as a consultancy is work with organizations wherever they are, if they already have a product in market or if they're creating a product to start to think about how they can proactively think about identities beforehand. So they don't have to have the after build of going back to the drawing board and now changing things that they could have actually thought about in the throughout the design process specifically. So yeah, I want to I want to flag though that this example is something that I'm just stating. It's not it, there isn't a product that I specifically know that is uh, doesn't work for black hands but works for people with disabilities is just an example that I'm sharing to highlight that Although we think about one group, we need to make sure that we're thinking about other groups so that when we talk about your question was, what is an inclusive product, that there isn't sort of that finish line, right? That we check off and we say, I officially have the most inclusive product because there will always be new things and new needs and new language and new perspectives that we need to continue to adapt for. But we can make sure that our product is meeting more needs of our customer market. And so instead of just saying that this is for everyone. Yeah, I like that. And I like that it is the mindset shift that people have to think about because people like feeling like they're done and they've done what they need to do. So for some people, if you think about it, like, oh, you're never done in this instance because you can continue to evolve and you're always discovering that might be like, oh my gosh, it could be, it could feel daunting for them. But if you think about it in a more of an empowering way of you're doing the best that you can, but we're always in a learning and growth process. And there's always things that we can do better. We're never at like perfection. So that kind of gives people permission, I guess, to move forward, knowing that this is an iterative process. Exactly. And I think it's sort of like, 
diversity, equity, and inclusion as a whole, right? It's this, this um, work doesn't have a finish line. It's a journey. Um, right. and, and so same goes for products. But what you do get is customer retention, customer yeah. acquisition, and those numbers grow as you create something where more people feel reflected and seen and respected through whatever you produce. Can services go through this process as well? Or is this more very product specific? Yeah, absolutely. So one of my colleagues, Mandy, actually shared with um, me a case study of Kohl's um, supermarket in Australia that had actually adopted quiet hours. And so um, recognizing that folks that are either parents of children who have sensory disabilities or people with sensory disabilities themselves find it challenging to shop in overstimulating environments, whether that be like the lighting, the noise, you know, constant announcements on over the PA, loud radio or, or music playing in the background, uh, a bustle of shoppers, cashier scanning products. It can be very um, hyper-stimulating. And so for folks that want to shop in a more quieter or have a more quieter shopping experience, Kohl's actually adopted or created quiet hours where they used, they, they lowered their lighting, they had um, no announcements unless emergency. Um, and so they created conditions that allowed for a better experience for people that don't like the overstimulation. And it ended up benefiting more than just that particular group of people, because I mean, I would probably go to <laughs> go to quiet hours, right? Because I, I would enjoy a quieter shopping experience. And so um, that sort of builds the case as well for how equitable or inclusive design actually can benefit a broader spectrum of people than, than the intended user. You know, sometimes we think that if we're designing with a person with disabilities in mind or with this particular community in mind, that that means that we're designing specifically for that group alone and it seems like an extra build or it feels, you know, that's, this is, these are the comments that we get from a lot of our clients. But the truth is that sometimes when you build something that uh, works for one group of people, it can actually end up working for a lot of other people as well. Right. Uh, right. So. I think about that often. Um, so I have a daughter, she's uh, a little bit over a year now and I never so much thought about ramps and streets and ramps to enter different buildings because I, I wasn't somebody who was in a wheelchair or needed, um, you know, things like that to be able to get around. But then once I started moving around with a stroller, suddenly all those things became important to me and I started seeking them out and noticing whenever they didn't exist. So I can imagine that these spaces were designed with one group of customers in mind, but it has benefit for people who are using strollers or things like that. Um, and those, like you said, they just kind of started to unravel or experience that spillover effect. Um, yeah, with similar audio- with audiobooks. Mm-hmm. Um, audiobooks is another example of, um, you know, the, the ability to have a book read to you uh, instead of reading it yourself was something that was designed for people um, with specific disabilities and actually ends up working for a lot more people. I buy audiobooks all the time. And so uh, that's another example. But this this idea of it stretching beyond a specific community is one that it's a case that's built 
primarily when we're talking about disabilities, right? If you build with disability in mind, you actually end up serving people of a lot of different identities and groups um, with their preferences and needs. But sometimes we do need to do extra builds for people that, for example, have darker skin complexion and actually, and I wouldn't even call it an extra build, but it's consideration of people that have a darker skin complexion, consideration of people that are um, members of the queer community because they are members of our society. And the right thing for businesses to do is to consider identities that stretch different spectrums. So we shouldn't lead with the business case that if I build for this group, it'll work for everyone. That isn't the point or the message. The message is that we have a diverse consumer base. And in order to make sure that we're meeting the needs of the most people that we can, we need to consider all sorts of people. I love that. And I'm, I'm wondering, as people are starting to think about their diverse group of customers, I think there are probably, there are certain groups that people sort of default to when they're thinking about types of diversity. Are you finding in your work that there are often certain groups that are left out of the conversation whenever it's time for people to think about developing products that are more inclusive? Mm, That's such a good question. I think it varies depending on, on the organization. So what we would do is recommend looking at an identity wheel or you've probably seen like the privilege wheel um, at the power privilege wheel. And so looking at something like that and actually thinking about and, and pausing on different identities that are there to think about who have I considered and who have I not? Because what I see some organizations focus on one area and other organizations focus on another. So there isn't really, I mean, I would say overall marginalized identities are often excluded. Racialized identities folks with disabilities, senior citizens, people who are non-English speaking, new immigrants, like the list goes on. A lot of these identities are excluded or not considered to varying degrees. And so I always recommend having um, a look at at something like that to actually flag the thinking around. Who did I think of more? Who did I think of less? And yeah. Okay. What are some best practices. I think, so you started to kind of lay out some best practices for people who are getting started, making sure that you're identifying the different types of identities that exist so that you could start considering them. Are there other recommended starting points or even best practices that people should be going through to make sure that they're thinking about the people who have the problem that their business solves and how they can best build products and services and experiences that support them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. I think it, a lot of this starts with research. That's where the bulk of, the, of this responsibility starts with or lies. And so I would look at, our re, at the research that companies have conducted and look at the types of folks that have been um, spoken to or have been interviewed for the purpose of it. How well do we understand the problem and who's the problem actually being experienced by? Is it being experienced by people of all different identities? Are we, are we assuming that it is? Is it something that we actually know because we've gone out and done the research? How do people from different communities experience this pain point or experience this problem? Is it, is it the same across the board or does that pain point differ? by different types of identity in different communities. And so sometimes what we see, or a lot of the time, what we see are organizations that say, 
well, our product is for all children between the ages of this and this. And so we'd say like all really all children, um, what kind of children, right? Is it, uh, is that product for children with varying physical disabilities? Is that product for children that are black? Is that product for indigenous children? Is that product for queer children? So when we start to actually ask these questions, then what we see is that a lot of companies are like, oh, um, I don't know. I, I didn't think about that because what we tend to default to unintentionally is privileged identities. And that becomes the norm. When we're designing something for children, what we really mean is the, the cisgendered boy who is able-bodied and white and so like we have an idea in mind, but we haven't actually explicitly called it out. And so it gets masked under children because all children are white boy, <laughs> you know? So that's kind of how we, what we, um, what we tend to default to. Same goes for when we say, you know, a product is for all women. Well, what women? Are we also thinking about trans women? Are we thinking about um, women with disabilities? Are we thinking about the black woman? Are we thinking about um, indigenous women or the women of color? Like when we start to actually stretch it beyond these, these bigger umbrella terms and we realize that intersectionality is a really important consideration, then we can start to see which, which groups have we really prioritized here and which ones have we forgotten about or have we excluded? And that isn't to say that you have to always include every single identity. You can exclude, but you have to do it with intention um, rather than ignorantly sort of glossing over identities and saying, well, <laughs> it's for everyone, right. when it really isn't. Yeah, I, I have, this is part of the soapbox thing that I, I talk about a lot in terms of, you know, inclusive marketing isn't about including everyone. It is just about making choices, being intentional with those choices, and then standing behind them. And as I was listening to you talk more about having people go through that process of considering, well, who do you mean whenever you say all? Who do you mean? Like, are you considering this person, that person? I imagine that people might be thinking about if they're using buyer personas, for instance, to think about or to describe their customers, I, I imagine that there are a lot of brands who haven't sufficiently broken out their customers in such detail that would allow them to think of it in that way. They're probably thinking about maybe their psychographics and some of their behaviors, but not going to that deep degree of some of those demographics that might require them to possibly have different personas or just kind of know the ways in which their customers are different. So I guess my, my question for you is, like what is the role of personas or avatars in helping a brand think about who really are the people who are going to be served with their products? Oh, that's a really heavy question. So as a team right now, we're actually, we're, we're really critiquing and spending time um, evaluating the purpose of personas um, I know that personas are used for marketing and they're also used in product development. And so there may be different purposes or different needs in, in um, both of those spaces, but personas can create a very narrow view on a particular person. And the intention is that we have focus, right? When we have a persona, it's so that we have 
focused on who we're selling to. But sometimes what happens is that we end up like leaving out a lot of other groups of people because we've profi- we've hyper profiled a person so so meticulously that now we're we're creating our content for that person or we're designing our product for that person. I think what's really important is instead for us to look at the way that we're segmenting first our market and and like considering diversity dimensions across segmentation. Okay. And then looking at identifying needs that exist within those particular segments. I'm not sure if I believe personas are the way to go because I think that personas can create stereotypes, harmful stereotypes. They can be used and, and unintentionally exclude a lot of folks. And so I think that there is other ways that we can achieve that end outcome by really focusing on first, have we appropriately segmented across these different diversity dimensions? Do we understand what the different needs are across those diversity dimensions? And then are we building our product based on what we've learned through those needs? Or are we building our product sort of based on our assumptions and and so on? But we don't, for us, we don't encourage the use of these really narrow identities um, because we think that that can be quite quite problematic if not done really really thoughtfully right I I totally agree with you I I know that I know why people use personas and I know why they can be helpful but whenever they're followed to the T if they're not designed with inclusivity in mind they're going to be leaving people out that brands probably have no idea that they're leaving out of the process. Take a big, slow, deep breath in through your nose. One, two, three, four. Now slowly exhale and push that breath and all the stress and tension out of your body. Four, three, two, one. That calm you're feeling right now, that's what you get with HubSpot. They're all in one customer platform and places the chaos of all those random tools you're using now with a single powerful platform for all your teams. Get everyone in the same frequency and boost output. Take care of the tedious stuff with AI-powered tools, generate better leads for marketing, close more deals for sales, and earn more five-star reviews for service. So don't hold your breath. Enjoy the zen that HubSpot brings to growing your business. Visit HubSpot.com to learn more today. Um, You mentioned intersectionality before, and I was trying to wrap my head around as you're thinking about your segments, as you're looking at your customers and the different ways in which their differences can impact the products and the services that you develop, how should you approach intersectionality into that? Because I I feel like that sometimes can throw a wrinkle into it, but intersectionality is so common, right? So, Yeah, I, I think the more types of folks that we're speaking with and the more types of folks that are involved in the process, the better chance you have of meeting the needs of people that carry intersectional identities. So like, I think all of, well, actually all of us are intersectional beings, right? We have various aspects of our identity. And I think this kind of bodes to the 80-20 myth that we hear a lot in product design, which is that if we build something for, we should build for the 80% and use 20% of the effort. Because when we do that, we end up getting the majority of people. And then all those people that are on the outside that are harder to get are the 20% that take 80% of our effort. So let's just build for that 
that 80%. But what we're really saying is the 80% is privileged. And what we're forgetting is that people are intersectional. So there really isn't an 80 and a 20 because we carry all aspects of identity. So we could have a disability, but also be a straight white man. We could have, um, you know, be, be queer, be black, but be able-bodied and have like, so we have aspects of our identity that are privileged and aspects of our identity that are, are marginalized and for many of us. And so when we're not building with uh, diversity in mind, then we're actually leaving out a lot of people. But we know that with intersectionality, there's compounded effects when we have uh, multiple aspects of our marginality show up. And so what we it's difficult when you think about like research techniques. And so we've done a lot of thinking around like how to appropriately reach out to specific audiences as well, because that's, uh, that's another thing in and of itself, which I'm not going to go into now, but um, thinking about how we can get a really good cross-section of people that have varying degrees of intersectionality in their identities so that we can understand how products or services are experienced by populations that carry more marginality. Okay. That makes sense. Now, what is the role of co-creation? Like what role does that play in the process of building inclusive products? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question for us. Co-design is so important and so necessary. We see a lot and that's why I don't believe it ends with inclusion. Um, I think that we have to really think about equity, we have to think about justice when we're building our products and services for companies and designers, professional designers to hold power over the decision-making of what is ultimately received by an end user that doesn't carry their identity. It creates that imbalance, right? Where you have the people who are receiving who this is intended for are not playing an active participatory role in the development and the design of what is intended to serve them. And that's really, um, that, that mirrors and mimics our existing system, right? Where we have people in power and government that are making decisions for, for people of all sorts of identities. And perhaps those people are not represented equitably and fairly throughout those decision-making roles. And their experiences are pulled on through um, let me interview you. Let me spend time talking to you. Let me extract from you, yeah. but then not actually engage you in the process as a part of the process. So we always talk about making sure that teams are represented, uh, are representative of the community as best as possible. That means people that you pay people that have jobs and employment that are working with you to actually um, produce what you're trying to produce. Yeah. Um, being really reflective on the on the identities that the team currently has and which identities are missing. Um, and then when you do engage with folks to make sure that it is done in a really thoughtful, reciprocal and non-extractive way. So we can't possibly carry every single intersection of identity on our team. But when we are doing our research and we are leaning into community um, and we're bringing in folks that are these different stakeholders that are, are, are there to help design the solution or are there to help inform the way the solution is thought of or the problem is understood, we have to make sure that those people receive mutual value. Um, and what that value looks like might differ for different types of people. And so right. that's for us to, to be fluid 
as organizations and as design practitioners to be fluid in the way that we understand what value can look like. Yeah, I I was thinking about this, something you said in terms of how people are classified and thinking about like their identity and are they, is there, is how they think of themselves the same way as we're classifying them. And I'll give you an example um, with the term BIPOC. Um, I think in Canada, they might say something different, but um, I know they say something different in Europe. And the more I talk to people, the more I realize that BIPOC is a term that isn't necessarily fully embraced by the people who are often part of that category. So uh, whenever I talk to black people, yeah, they don't that they they want to be called black people they, rather than BIPOC. Whenever I talk to people of color that are kind of lumped in here, sometimes they don't consider themselves a person of color. They consider themselves a, a part of a another group. And you're like, oh, I guess I I think that I so I'm, I think that there are sometimes products and services or even equity programs that exist in certain instances designed for certain groups, but because the groups probably weren't involved in the classification or the naming process, they don't necessarily identify. So there's often ends a disconnect in that, in that instance. It's so true. Yeah. And I think as much as we can get to like embracing and understanding the uniqueness of each of our identities and, and, and what we bring rather than applying just a label to an identity is really that that's where we want to be because, um, you know, I, I think about, for example, even just on boards, um, we see this push to have like a certain number of BIPOC on on a board, for example. Well, why is it that like white folks get to be themselves and just make up all these different intersections of whiteness on the board? But then when it comes to BIPOC, it's like, oh, okay, we have like one black person and one East Asian person. So therefore we've checked the box on all BIPOC. Well, like BIPOC is such a diverse spectrum right. of people right. that represent identities from across the globe. <laughs> so we we somehow have assumed that by lumping every single person with all of the uniqueness of their cultural and heritage and, and like language identities and so and, and racial identities into this box of BIPOC that we have completed our task and now we, we're okay. And so same goes for the way that we are thinking about identities when we're sourcing uh, people to participate in our in our work um, and in what we're building. Yeah, such a rich discussion. Okay, I wanna have another question for you. We can talk about so many different of these layers <laughs> for a good little time. Um, okay, so I can imagine that people who are listening to this thinking, this all sounds cool, but it also sounds very expensive. And not to say that they don't want to do it, they have a desire to do it, but like maybe just being hung up on, this sounds like a very large task and I don't have the budget for it. Does inclusive design for product design, it doesn't have to be something that's very expensive, right? It, it doesn't. can be, but it doesn't always have, like that's not the... No, like yeah, I think what what will free people from that consideration is a, a few things. Like one, this is a journey. And to always remember that this is a process and this is a journey, but it starts with how we think. Thinking is and free. <laughs> thinking is free. And I think the bigger problem apart from budget here is the, is urgency culture. That's why we named our organization Pause and Effect because our role is to support organizations in 
pressing that pause button for a moment on innovation and on their go, 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 get this out, launch that thing to actually just ask some really critical contemplative questions in those moments between like where we, where we stop for a moment and we think and between, between that and like an acting, um, there's this sweet spot where we can actually spend time assessing and reevaluating and looking at what we've done in, in a lot of design teams, they have retrospectives, right? They, at the end of their process or at the end of a, a sprint, they might look back and say, okay, what worked well, what didn't work well. We want to encourage diversity and, and, um, anti-racism and equity and justice to be part of that discussion as well. When we're thinking, uh, when we are are going, 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 what we end up doing is replicating and reproducing the the problems that we see in this world because we lean on what is familiar and what is easy and what we've been practicing all along, which unfortunately has been exclusionary practices. And so when we put those moments of pause in our design process, we allow for ourselves to, to critique and contemplate over um, who might be harmed, who might be excluded, who have we not thought about? And we have a lot of different questions that we that we share with our clients and we walk them through at different stages of their design process. So it's not so much about budget as it is about actually creating the space and the time um, and the priority of thinking about these particular groups of people. Everyone thinks it's an extra build, but really the extra build is when we build something already without being thoughtful and then have to go back and change it. So I, I hope that that offers a reframe to the folks that are listening, that it's not about this heavy investment of money upfront. Um, it is about an investment of time. And with that time and that practice, you actually create something that saves you money in the end and that generates more money. I hate building the business case for why we should be uh, better humans in this world. But <laughs> at the end of the day, when you are producing something that benefits and works for and delights a diverse cross-section of people, you end up getting more customers. So. Totally agree. Totally agree with you on all fronts. Okay. You mentioned something where I know we're wrapping up. So one, I want to, you mentioned justice and equity, but you also said something about who does this harm? Can you talk about that? Cause I don't think that we often think about products and the products and the services that we're producing and delivering in the context of harming others. Can you talk a little bit about, about what type of, what that means? Sure. Um, I have an example. So um, Facebook has memories uh, as a feature. And every so often, I don't know if it exists now, but I I had read an article on this, which is why I know about it. Every so often, a memory will pop up on on your timeline or as a reminder or notification uh, to say, hey, back in 2017, this memory, this thing happened, this picture. Well, what if that picture brings forward really horrible memories. Like what if it brings up something, you know, somebody who's passed away or um, your house burned down or, you know, something that's a a personal traumatic instance or tragedy that's occurred. Now we've created a product or we've created something within our product where 
there, there's a potential for harm. Okay. And we haven't created any tools or mechanisms around that to allow for people to have agency in what they see and what they don't see. If we've got this just sort of just popping up. So within the design process, having those moments to actually think about with this feature, who might be harmed, we have that opportunity to think about different audiences. And, and that's just something that's general that that applies to people of all different sorts of identities that there could be trauma or triggers that that are shown specifically to identity. Those things can come up as well uh, right. when we're producing something, whether it's it's harm as in like a trauma or even just like subconsciously harm in just societally not seeing yourself represented right? So there is the, that, that is harmful too. And it's something that we maybe don't quantify or we don't talk about as much as the, the subconscious harm that exists when we, when we continue to see products and services that are built without us in mind. I love it. I love it. Um, <laughs> there, it, it goes back to what you said around the beginning of this process and it goes all the way through with thoughtfulness and thinking about this is changing the way we think. I want to keep talking, but I know we got to wrap it up. Um, do you have any parting words of wisdom for business leaders who want to start down the path of building inclusive products that do the least amount of harm as possible? Yeah, I would say it starts with what you prioritize and the, the messaging that's, um, that's spread through the organization. So especially when we're talking to business leaders, Oftentimes what I see is a deferral over to the designers or to primarily to the designers where they say, Hey, um, we need you to focus on this. We like, you know, work with this consulting company and fix this thing in the product. But if you haven't created the organizational conditions that actually allow for that to happen, meaning that you're continuing to push priorities or, or um, expediency um, down the pipeline to get this thing out quickly, and you haven't actually changed the behaviors that exist at the leadership or at the decision-making level, that actually doesn't support this work. Um, creating or sending those messages consistently across. I know that product managers hold a tremendous amount of power. We often talk about the designers, but we're not realizing that the product managers own a lot of the decision-making. They, they own that prioritization. And so if the product managers are actually dropping off a lot of, of these priorities that maybe are being vocalized by the designers, again, there's a mandate or a directive that needs to come from the leadership to actually send that down to to those team members and say, no, this is actually what we want you to focus on. These are the particular priorities. And so by embodying those behaviors and by communicating this as a priority, I think leaders can um, have a lot of impact. Very good. Sabrina, this has been a real treat, a real joy. I wish we had more time and we can talk more. So that probably means you just got to come back and we can (laughs) (laughs) But thank you so much for stopping by. You've given us so much to think about in ways that we can not only build better product services, but that we can be better people as we work to, you know, make life better for the people that we're serving. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. There was so much goodness in that conversation. I hope you enjoyed it just as much as I did. And I hope that it gives you 
a right frame of mind and thinking and mindset with regard to how to ensure that the products, services, and experiences you deliver are inclusive from the very beginning. All right, that's it for today's show. If you like this episode, I would so appreciate it if you would leave a rating and review for it in your podcast player of choice. It really does go a long way toward helping more people discover the show. Another quick question for you. Are you getting the inclusion and marketing newsletter? If not, like really, what are you even doing? Each week I share news, tips, stories, insights, and other tidbits to help you build an inclusive brand that attracts and retains a diverse customer base. Go to inclusionandmarketing.com slash newsletter to get signed up. I'll also drop a link to it in the show notes for you so you can access it easily. Until next time, remember, everyone deserves to have a place where they belong. Let's use our individual and collective power to ensure more people feel like they do. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you soon.